0: Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So James, today it's your choice of guest on here. You've invited John from OrcaScan. I just said to my son that we are going doing this podcast recording and the company was called OrcaScan and he was like, that's really cool. What is it? So so how how come you
1: invited John? Well, yeah, John and I go back a few years when uh, OrcaScan were based actually in the Bradfield Centre and we've stayed in touch uh in the in the years that have gone by since then uh, i just i just think john's a really interesting guy you know as you'll hear from the interview he's got such a sense of customer focus and really gaining insight from taking the time to actually go out meet your customers listen to what they tell you and then implement that in your product and i think he's also a technical co-founder so he's a coder himself so he's got that real superpower of having the ability to really both create and understand the product but also uh, has developed the commercial skills and the customer insight skills to match alongside you know the technical skills which gives him such an advantage
0: that's great so should we find out a bit more let's do that Hi John, it's great to have you with us today.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: We've we've only just met, so tell me a little bit about you and how you came about founding Orcascan.
2: My background is I'm a software engineer. I started coding probably about the age of 11, just writing games. And back in them days, it, we had a, a ZX Spectrum, which is actually created in Cambridge. Uh, and we used to get these magazines every week that had the games written in them, so you'd write them. And I'd figured out that you could you know, change the number of lives and things like that. So it kind of really got me hooked on on coding, about 11 year old. And then I got to about 14, and I just really wasn't interested in academia or educational or school, I guess. So I dropped out and I used to just kind of build applications and, and, and computer games on Amigas and things like that. And then when I finally got like to work working age, I started writing stock control programs for local companies. And then it just so happened back in maybe 1990,000, 90, I was offered a, a contract in Royston where we had to kind of connect these mainframe machines with the internet at the time, actually. And I just spent a, a little bit of time working on the local government's mainframe systems, upgrading it for this like Y2K bug that was kind of scaring oh. people at the time. Yep. And so I had to kind of write cross set of skills. So I came down to Cambridge for like six weeks and then ended up staying. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of my background. In terms of scan, so I spent, I'd say, maybe 20-odd years in and around Cambridge, like traveling or working contracts. So I do, like, typically 6 to 12 months contract work, and I try and save as much money as I could in, this, in these contracts. And I quit and try and start a business. And I and, and obviously failed many, many times. But um, eventually I stumbled upon this, what, what is now in which was my teenage son at the time actually had, he had a summer job where he had to travel the UK scanning barcodes on solar panels. And so he came home with this hardware scanner and asked if, is there a way to keep the button pressed so I can just walk along and capture these barcodes? And there was no easy way of doing that. But I was working at Cambridge Assessment at the time, and we were just building rapid prototypes of mobile apps. So we just created a mobile app very quickly, like overnight. He took it to work the next day. He actually taped it to a skateboard on a a (laughs) pole, walked along these panels, and it just continuously captured barcodes and very, very simple application. And at the end of the day, hit a button and it sent that information as a spreadsheet. And that's kind of where Rocker started, really. He's, some of his um, colleagues had Android devices, so we created the Android version. And because I was always a contractor, I thought well, I, one of the challenges as being a, a software developer in the contract industry is there's no portfolio work. So when you go to another contract, you can't show them what you've done. So I thought, I'll, I'll put this on the App Store as a portfolio piece. And then to my surprise, it just kind of got lots and lots of downloads and people emailing and asking for features. And, and it kind of t- it took on from there, really, went on from there.
0: I love that. I love the I love the story, you know. There's the always a skateboard it's, story with that. I love that. Yeah. And and the need, you know, the fact that it's something that you know, your son comes home with says, help me fix this, and you could go and do that. So those years in beforehand, obviously, were put to put to very good use, weren't they?
2: Yeah, it was It was really interesting, actually, because now, at the time, I was thinking, it, you know, I'd spent all this time kind of contracting and, and quitting these contracts and trying to start companies. And I'd always take the classic techie approach of, like, building some new cool tech that I thought people would really like. Spend six months, burn all the cash and then take it to a customer and realise nobody wanted it. And the opposite had happened in this case. It got traction on its own, if you like. And then when I kind of analysed that over time, as we progressed, realised that one of the reasons I came to Cambridge in the first place with this mainframe work was to build a barcode system for transport at the time. And so what I kind of realised is what we developed had essentially solved the problem that we had 20 years earlier. It just so happened that the industry hadn't really changed. So yeah, it was super interesting.
0: So what does Orcascan do now?
2: So ArcaScan's a no-code barcode application. So the idea is, if you want to build a barcode system today, typically you would reach out to one of these large uh, companies, SAP, or maybe some, some other ERP system, and there's a whole long sales cycle and procurement cycle that's involved, really. What ArcaScan does is it just turns anyone's smartphone into an enterprise barcode scanner. So you can download the app on your phone. And then if you want to configure it or program it, you would just go to the web, and you drag and drop columns and spreadsheet format. And you build your own application and then you can share that data with everybody else so we're essentially creating an enterprise barcode system but using smartphones and a, and a web-based spreadsheet
0: i guess the applications are pretty endless for it
2: yeah it's got a vast range of applications so one of the interesting things about the barcode industry is the technology has been around almost i think this year's 50 years since the first retail barcode scan but interestingly enough, although barcodes are really heavily adopted in industry and, and they're regulated around the world, so, for example, every medication that you take, every medical device is being tracked down to the individual item so it can be recalled. And that tracking all happens in these you know, barcode formats, and these are regulated by government. But the problem is, although these barcodes are well adopted, access to scanners is the real problem. So even if you look at like hospitals like Allenbrookes, for example, you've got lots of equipment and drugs and things that are moving around. But um, it, there might only be a handful of scanners, and so and they need to be sanitized and swapped over. Whereas we've kind of, you know, things have changed now. What we noticed in the early days of Oracle scan is our customers were people that were typically using pen and paper. They're writing down barcode numbers or maybe typing them in the spreadsheets. And, you know, times change now. You're more likely to be carrying a phone these days than a pen. So by turning that into that enterprise scanner, we'd kind of solve that gap in, in the market, really, I guess. So, John, we obviously first met when you were based here um, it was a few years ago now, right? Twenty thirteen, yeah. Yeah.
1: And the thing that sticks in my mind from those days is just your, I guess, real vision about the simplicity of winning over complexity, because I guess the people that you're competing against, as you say, they're kind of much more complex, larger organisations, much more bloated kind of product sets, hard to deal with. It sounds like that kind of vision and that kind of sticking to that that vision has really paid off for you.
2: Yeah, it's worked out really well. I think that comes from a combination of things, really. So going from kind of contract to contract over the last 20 odd years, it's great in a way because you're thrown into these companies and they they normally bring contractors in when things have gone wrong or something needs to happen quickly. But what it does is it allows you to see all different types of businesses with different varying problems. But ultimately they're all, almost always the same issue you know so you can kind of by stripping back the complexity you can build something simple but i think the reason why um you know the simplicity in orcas can work so well is because going back a few years ago i had an e-commerce company and ran this company for five years and my my role in the business was to put this offline company online so we built an e-commerce store and got organic traffic around the world and then we got to a point where we were struggling to, to fulfill orders so we had to build an internal barcode system and i didn't have the time so we brought in an external engineer and he went through this massively painful process of like choosing the right hardware and all of these complex you know, um, decisions to make. And then once you've chosen a vendor, like for example, you know one of the hardware companies, you're locked into that, that yeah. company then. Uh, and so I just kept thinking at the time, this is insane. Why isn't somebody creating a nice app I can put on my phone and I can just tap into the API? And so I think that simplicity is really thinking back to, if I could go back to that time, what would I have liked You know, if I, if I could have got off the shelf? Yeah. Um, but I think it also rides on the back of this concept of, uh, like consumerization of enterprise, where yeah. we say, like, you know, for example, historically, if you wanted to sell software in a large enterprise company, you'd go down, reach out to IT or procurement, yeah. and you'd go top down. Whereas these days, people will go to work and they'll they'll, they'll install Dropbox and then it will spread yeah. internally. And that's exactly what happens with Orcas. Somebody inside of Toyota or something will have a task to do, and they'll they'll try and find a way. But rather than going through the management procurement cycle that yeah. might take six months, they'll download an app, they'll start playing with it, they'll get it working, and they'll, and they'll share it internally, and then. Yeah. carries on
1: it's really removed all of those gatekeepers that used to be there controlling everything right
2: exactly yeah
1: Yeah, it's really interesting and you you i just wanted to go back about your comment about putting it into the app store you were very modest and kind of blase about that but you had some really big companies downloading it right and yeah you know without any real marketing budget you suddenly had opportunities to work with some really significant companies
2: yeah and that was that was what really kind of surprised us really because initially one in the app what the app store there's um your downloads information is completely anonymous, so you don't know who these people are. So I think within a few months, we had about 30,000 downloads. And so the next challenge was, okay, how do we identify who these people were? So we added a registration screen, so just email and password registration. And that's what we noticed. It was like Toyota and NASA and Airbus. And and that was really interesting because then you start thinking, wow, why are these companies? Toyota's especially interesting because Toyota invented the QR code or partially responsible for the invention they have no capital constraints and they certainly have no innovation constraints. They invented the lean movement in manufacturing. So why are are, employees in these companies going to the app store to find the solution? So that that was really interesting to kind of dig into, understand that. We initially assumed it's obviously because of hardware scanners are inaccessible and and smartphones are more accessible. So that, that felt obvious, but that wasn't the only issue over time. What we figured out was, um, is that the, you know, the people inside of these companies will be given a task, like a shop floor worker's got a task and they want better visibility. So they'll build a rapid prototype however they can get that working, um, and then they'll, they'll just roll it out. And so our initial assumption was, well, we're replacing the hardware, but then we started getting people in other parts of the same business saying, we've got these dedicated scanners in dispatch or whatever it might be. Can you make the software work with that as well? And so then it was more about like, okay, our scan needs to work everywhere went from like this very simplistic application to to then thinking about compatibility. So what I mean by that is like, if you sound to Spotify now or Netflix, you can pretty much assume that it's going to work wherever you are. You know, it's going to work on any TV and any mobile device. And I think, you know, Orca's ability to do the same thing is kind of what's what's given it its edge. Since it's that really.
1: In some ways, there's a parallel to, I mean, Netflix jumps out, you know, the way that when Netflix was a very early stage business, they did a great job of getting the Netflix app on pretty much any device, Yeah, all the TVs, you know, smartphones, you know, laptops, computers, etc. That was a real key, I think, in their, in their growth is just that availability on every device.
2: Yeah, exactly. It completely alters that vendor lock-in because typically, I mean, for years, I used to think when, I, when I a career used to to come to the house and they drop off a parcel and they would give you, you know, like a, they'd pull out this old hand scanner and ask you to sign, but they're carrying this like high-tech iPhone in the pocket and used to blow my mind yeah. thinking, why? Surely this is going to change and never did, but like, you know, I guess in the hardware space, there is there's definitely a need for some of these devices when you're looking at like high-speed production lines and things like that there's need for that kind of equipment. But yeah, connecting them all together, I think what we see in the, in the software world like vendor lock-in is very real in the hardware world as well and also like the NHS are very invested in one particular hardware company. And so they'll have to continuously go down that route and, and that, you know, everything's much, much more complex. So by being able to say, you can get started with your smartphone. And then if you've got a Honeywell device or a Logic device or a Zebra installed on that, and you can collaborate with everybody. And it means that companies can start small and then they can add additional bits of kit when they need to. So I think that's yeah, quite unique.
0: That's the beauty of good tech it's the usability of it you know you're dealing with all the pain in the background you know the fact that it is adaptable and you know people can just literally use it It just works yeah yeah absolutely
1: so it's been another busy week let's have a quick break in the conversation with john to see what else has been going on this week in the news so Faye, first off what's your week been like
0: it has been busy as always. Um, often happens when you've had a week off; you come back to complete mayhem. So, just n- another day in the in our, our normal world, I suppose. But um, I guess one of the highlights this week, I was invited to a round table by the High Commission of Canada, and they'd brought over a delegation of fourteen women-led tech companies. And so I was invited to really just talk about Cambridge and what we do and what other tech companies are here. So it was really great to to have that conversation. You'll like this one. I sat next to a gentleman called Aris Saman, who, when we talked about the podcast, he was really interested in doing a showcase. He was talking about different parts of the Commonwealth and different countries that may focus on certain technologies. And he's like, wouldn't it be great to do a, a, you know, one of your podcasts on all these different countries in the Commonwealth? So what, what do you think about that?
1: Well, we're always looking for new ideas for content, aren't we? I need to go back and check the figures of how many listeners we've got in Canada and see if you've managed to spike them next week. So I'm, I'm expecting Canada to shoot up the charts.
0: Yeah, but well, well so, so Arif was actually from London, so don't, don't penalise me for that, will you? But I did also have a conversation with someone in New Zealand who was going to come on the podcast, and he was enthralled at the fact that there were already 20 subscribers from New Zealand, so we're definitely getting out there
1: yeah we are yeah we'll have to maybe do an update at some point on how the show's going to all the listeners but yeah it's a so last time i learned it's a crazy number of countries like you know outside the top four or five of countries you would probably expect there's about another 50 where we've got listeners which is insane and just in 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 kind of a weird kind of virtual world meets real world two people came up to me in the bradfield center this week saying how much they love the podcast which was which was quite surreal one of them recognised me for my voice and said, oh, I listen to your podcast.
0: <laughs> God, our sick tones are getting everywhere now, James. So what have you been up to?
1: Yeah, similar to you, another busy week, but um, I had a really interesting day on Wednesday. Uh, I spent some time over on the University of Cambridge's west site over the other side of town. And they've got a really nice new building called the West Hub. Uh, which is a nice study space and meeting place for students. So that's a fairly new building. It's only been up about six months or so, I think. So that's, that's a really nice space. And there's so much development going on and so much construction going on over there. It's really impressive to see. And I was over there to attend the reboot of the University Enterprise Network, which is a kind of network and uh, knowledge sharing uh, network of all of the different organizations inside the university and affiliated to the university and partnering with the university that focus on startups and entrepreneurs and I think there's something in the order of 65 or 75 different organizations so that in itself is kind of interesting for the just the density of activity that's happening in Cambridge but uh, yeah the reason for the meeting was they're rebooting it and we got a sneak peek at the new branding and the new kind of uh, mission and purpose of it and it's really really impressive uh, so caroline hyde she's done an amazing job and it was really impressive and we'll definitely get caroline on to talk about it when it goes public which i think is cambridge tech week they're looking to make the public launch so i won't let any cats out of any bags at this stage but uh, yeah it, it was really interesting and Good opportunity to meet a few new people as well in particular the, the people involved in Canopy which is a new university run workspace focused on sustainability startups which is interesting so I'm going to go over there in a couple of weeks time and check that out we should maybe go down there and see them for the podcast as well. Met Samantha Deacon who's the new program manager at the Impulse program at the Maxwell Centre and we certainly see a lot of uh, teams going through Impulse coming onto the Trinity Bradfield Prize so we've got lots of things to catch up on so we're going to follow up with some coffee and also i did plug the podcast so she's keen to come on to that so yeah lots of ideas and lots of potential guests for the podcast
0: brilliant that's great news
1: and i guess we've also now gone public with our crazy plan for cambridge Tech week do you want to kind of tell everyone what we're going to be doing
0: when Gemma put it out on social media earlier on today, up on, on LinkedIn, etc., and people started responding going, oh, that's a great idea. So we're, we're going to do a live recording. Um, so all the details are about to be released, but we're just starting to get people booking it into their diary. So I think it'll be really good. Uh, you know, it'll, be, it'll certainly be great fun, but it's also slightly nerve wracking. I do wonder what we keep letting ourselves in for, to be honest.
1: Yeah, we're going to put ourselves under a bit of pressure, me especially. It takes me about 15 takes to, to say some of these uh, startup names at Cambridge. Come, If only we had a branding agency in Cambridge that came up with Sensible Nights.
0: Hey, yeah, well, well, you know, we do, we do. There's, there's actually a few of us, you know.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, we, I don't know what we've let ourselves name for, but it should be fun. Hopefully it'll be high energy and uh, it'll be nice to get some interaction with an audience and asking the guests some questions as well, so it's not just us. That'll be uh, fun. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, and we've we've posted it on social and there's a bit.ly for it, live cam tech pod. Um, It'll be in the show notes. Well, you'll do a blog post as well, James, won't you? And put it up on the website.
1: If you follow us on social, you're bound to see it. But if you're in any doubt, go over to cambridgetechpodcast.com and you'll see it there.
0: Well, it was nice to have a catch up with you, James, as well, finding out what we're up to. So should we talk about the news? Business Weekly have provided us some updates. So should we go through that quickly? Yeah, let's do that. First up, we have Oxbridge duo, Dr. Andrew Williamson from Cambridge Innovation Capital and Professor Irene Tracy, Oxford University, who are spearheading a new independent review to stimulate some global growth for innovative UK companies. It follows on from Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's vision to nurture the world's next Silicon Valley. So I think that's going to be a really interesting piece and they respond and and provide the input. I think, during the summertime.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. There's been news of a new data centre campus that's had its full planning approved by Cambridgeshire County Council and it's going to be one of the largest in Europe apparently. The site's going to be located near Ely in East Cambridge.
0: Yep, and I think it's another good instance where... Things are going outside of Cambridge. You know, Cambridge is a big place, so, so East Camden is a logical place. Um, CMR Surgical are also in the news as well. They have a new CEO, so Perver Gardner Seth is stepping down and with immediate effect, we've now got Supratim Bose, who's taking over.
1: Maggie Cole, uh, who are a social enterprise created by a team of scientists at the Cambridge University and also activists in Tanzania have won an Innovate UK funding grant to help transform water infrastructure in sub-Sahara Africa. The organisation has developed a water kiosk that purifies, stores and dispenses clean, affordable drinking water via solar energy.
0: That's great. And there's someone that we know as well from past days in 21 to watch. So it's great to see them moving on. So finally, machine learning specialist Intelligence has flown from its temporary nest at Barclays Eagle Labs. And it's now got a new HQ in Chesterton Mill. So huge congratulations to Ben and the team over at Intelligence.
1: So, yeah, as always, lots going on. But let's now go back to our episode with John at Orcascan.
0: So talk to us a little bit about how
2: the business has grown. Like I mentioned, it all started organically. So once we realised that there was an opportunity here and we identified these customers, the next thing was, right, the reason why this is getting lots of downloads is because it's free. So how do you monetize? Where's the monetization opportunity? And so I was working at Cambridge at the time. I used to go to Cambridge MakeSpace on and, and evenings and weekends to do some kind of additional work and brainstorm with other people in the community. And then I eventually applied to the Accelerate Cambridge at the Judge Business School and explained that you know, we've got this product, we've got this this idea and it's working, we've got traction, but we can't quite figure out how do, we, how do we get to a business model. And so from that, it was really very much what we continue today, and that is working really closely with users. So either interviewing them on calls or ideally going out and visiting them and kind of saying, okay, show me exactly what it is you're trying to achieve, and then taking whatever that task is and trying to do it yourself. And then from that, realizing, okay, these are the potential bottlenecks that we see. This is how we could fix them, and, and this is the potential revenue opportunities. So in our case, what happened was we'd we'd solve this issue with people needing to write down or type barcode numbers in spreadsheets by capturing it using their phones and sending the email. But then we were getting people reaching out saying, well, now we've got people in the office getting 50 spreadsheets via email are there. So we create this kind of cloud-based spreadsheet that allows them to kind of collaborate and synchronize data. And that's kind of the engine that we, we now monetize.
0: How do you balance the customer relationship stuff with the sales, with business development? You know, yeah. how, how does that work?
2: That's an, that's an interesting question. I think I often reflect on this thinking that maybe we're doing it, there's a better way of doing this. But for us, it's almost like, um, I've written open source software for quite a lot of years as well. Um, it almost feels like an open source project in the sense that our users are continuously giving us feedback about how we can improve the product. And so we don't have any salespeople in the company. We just have dedicated, what we call customer success, and their job is to, to help unlock, um, you know, if people get stuck on something or maybe somebody, quite often we see people come to us and they're looking to solve a particular problem. they know barcoding is already on these items they've got. They're looking for implementation support, for example. So the customer success team will work out what is the best workflow that's going to work most efficiently for you. And that's kind of how we our sales kind of develop as well, really. We try and just be very genuine in if we can help you solve a problem, and, and, and there's clearly value. Like if if it costs you more in man hours than it would to pay for our system, then it makes sense for you to to subscribe if you like. And that's kind of how we've evolved. business.
1: It sounds like you set the culture yourself right from those early days because you had that curiosity about discovering who these people were downloading the app from the app store, reaching out and having those conversations and getting the insights in terms of how they're using it, how you can improve it. I think that's a really important takeaway for people listening that are trying to build their own companies is like treat every one of those downloads as an opportunity rather than i think it's easy to get caught up in the numbers game and just permanently push for more downloads but not take the time to get the insights from the customers
2: yeah i think that's i think I dead right i think um i, I guess you know thinking about okus can be like organic in, in its growth so i mean to date for example we've we scan about 15 million items a month But it's completely organic we still haven't paid for any any advertising at all and it's and we could obviously deploy some capital on the advertising side and scale but it really is about i think spending more time with customers and understanding exactly what it is okay what do you need how can we help you and kind of figure it out and then and then taking them features and functionality they've needed and bringing that back into the product then rolling out to others yeah i think i think it definitely works really well and it builds really good customer attention really because you've you know they haven't just found you online and know it and you kind of kind of solve a problem. Yeah. And it also means that like our product roadmap is kind of hard to predict in a way. Really, I think in my previous attempts at business, I used to obsess about competitors. I think we do the opposite. Now we probably obsess about customers. And that's really good because if you're obsessed about competitors, all you're really going to do is copy their roadmap. Mm. Obsessing about customers means that you, your roadmap is constantly being given to you by this industry that's got lots of problems and so it's um it's really interesting to yeah,
0: I, l- I love that as an approach i think that's great because you you like you say you are you're defining through your customers what happens next so it'll leave the big companies that have got the big budgets behind you won't it yeah, yeah it's really interesting so john you also talked earlier on about um some of that you've been around in Cambridge for a long time, and you you picked out a few names there. So I think you said make space, the Judge Business School. you've obviously already talked about Trinity Bradfield Center. Yeah. How much have you used the system around you to get where you need to be?
2: I think I've used Cambridge a lot actually. Um it's really benefited me from coming here. Obviously, as I mentioned, I was super uh, inspired when I first came down to Cambridge and realized that the the computer I learned to code on was was created here, so that was that was amazing. But since then, I think, like, working in Cambridge Assessment, which is, like, the assessment part of the university, that was really interesting because you've got a 150-year-old organization that's kind of setting its words really. And we were brought in as this kind of, like, innovation team to go around the business, try and find areas that we could improve radically, and we create these short six-week sprints and, and create prototypes. And that definitely put me in a, in a right mindset to build this product because we were used to just rapid iterations. And then, like, the Cambridge community, so from there, actually, I found out about... Uh, an event, I think it was it was Q-Tech event at the engineering department. So I went across to that and then, you know, I met a few engineers and a few other people listened to you know, some guest speakers. And then from that, I discovered the venture creation weekends at the Judge Business School. And that was where I kind of realized all the mistakes I'd been making. So I'd been starting these companies and running out of cash. And what I wasn't doing is speaking to the customers. I was building, I was a classic engineering problem, isn't it? I was building a product first and then talking to customers afterwards. So I think that kind of taught me a lot really. Um, spending time on the venture creation weekend and interviewing people and then trying to build a solution and that worked fantastically and from there i discovered the make which is like a 24 7 access hack space really that was super insightful because in the early days of orca i'd just be working on the project and i'd speak to other engineers that, and then, you know people from around the cambridge community so from mom and others would come there even as and weekends to work on their projects and i'd kind of talk about okay how could I involve Oculus? I was in the early days I was thinking maybe we could create like a, a, a case for an iPhone that's got the laser on so we could do better quality and so we looked into that and then you know just talking to some engineers realized the cost of course the hardware and you know all of these things and so that it helped kind of um, yeah definitely fine tune the product and even like pitching as well actually you know talking about the potential of the opportunity there's some people in Makespace with a lot of business experience that were able to give us guidance and from there obviously we came came here to the Broadfield Center in the early days and um spend some time mixing with other startups as well. And I think just in being in that ecosystem and brainstorming with other founders, it's just super valuable to get that kind of insights. And then obviously onto the business school, the judge, which kind of helped us find where, what is that business model. That really that helped us um, kind of create a business that was gonna be sustainable enough to build a team around it. And that was kind of invaluable. And the, the mentors of the judge and this completely free uh, course as well. So you don't, you're don't you not giving away equity or anything. Obviously you've got to you know pitch, dig in access. But the the idea, I think, I think it was an interesting experience for me because as a developer, the last thing I want to do is talk to people. I prefer a keyboard in front of me. And at the judge, it was kind of counterintuitive, but they were arguing that we need to you need to be able to present, like put some some slides, tell a story. And I just didn't seem it didn't seem obvious. But um and now I realise obviously years later that's super important. If you want to recruit people or you want to secure customers, you need to be able to communicate what it is you're doing. So I think it was the judge was super, super valuable, not just in finding the revenue source and the potential to grow, but also altering my mindset as to about how you actually go from taking a technology product from just conception to, to not to scale, I guess.
0: If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, lakeside pavilion and atrium spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.
1: so we've already had some some gold from you in terms of no sales no marketing driven by customer insight i think the other thing that fascinates me is your approach to kind of building the business from a from a financial perspective you've been very much on the page of growing through revenue rather than going for huge amounts of injections of vc funding as well which is kind of counterintuitive you know people think about the startup scene being very much about valuations and fundraising talk to us about your kind of your philosophy around
2: that in the early days as i said i would try and start these companies and i would run out of funds there are a few scenarios where i did create companies that ran a few years and eventually failed and one of the products failed really because the timing was all wrong so we would created this web-based application which is pretty much like google's uh, g suite this was back in 1999 2000 long before ajax was a term and like internet explorer 5 was around and the problem we had there was there was no such thing as a cloud so we're trying to convince customers to or like these financial companies, put your data on our servers and we'll we'll give you access to it. And they were like, mmm. Um so that didn't that didn't really work. So we learned about the kind of timing issue there. And then in the e-commerce business, I joined a husband and wife team and I completely ignored the legals. Um and and, and it got very political once 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 the pressure was on and things were starting to go wrong and we're trying to scale. And so I think I kind of realized from that point of view, you need to be very careful about the, you know, like when I when I think about investment, I always think about the politics side of it is, is you know, you're know, inviting opinions. Mm. So I think I was always a bit skeptical, but, you know, regardless, we continued to build OrcaScan initially, just bootstrapping. And then we got to a certain point where we thought we kind of did fall into that hype around building a, a venture-backed company. Wow. So we applied to our company in the US and got down to their shortlist and the flew us over for an interview. And they said, um, you know, you've been working on this project now, I think maybe 18 months or something. And then, um, what they were saying is you've got good traction, but you should be able to move faster. Where is the where is the revenue and how do you tie the revenue to the actual usage? And and so that kind of stuck with us. And when we came back to Cambridge, and so they they rejected us and they said, go fix these problems and reapply in six months. So we came back to Cambridge and then thought, okay, maybe they're right. And so to that point we'd been bootstrapping. So we'd take we'd take like a two or four week uh, mobile project from the university and we'd build that and then once that was finished, we'd go back to building the product. Yeah. But it meant you're always stopping and starting. So, we thought, okay, we'll raise some investment. So, we raised like a small pre seed from the Cambridge community to try and help us move past that. And then we continued building the product, interviewing users, and growing the revenue. And we reapplied to Y Combinator again. And this time, we went back. had a co founder at the time, and we got rejected again, unfortunately. We decided, okay, we can't just keep pursuing the VC route anywhere. I was very aware of the fact that we need to be building a business here and not. Yeah. You know, the, the, the venture capital isn't a success. It's really the the revenue, you know, and being able to um, sustain it itself really. Anyway, it me and my co-founder eventually split. And so I I came back to Cambridge and went back to Luther actually, the judge, and I realized that the first phase through the Accelerate program, I'd almost like deliberately didn't want to take part in any pitching. So I'd be like, oh, I'm the tech guy, so you can do all the pitching. And then I came back to kind of Luther and said, I really, I really need to understand this. Like, how do you communicate? And um, so Luther kind of ran us back through part of that program. And and from that moment on, I kind of realized that, okay, I'm now a sole founder and we'd already raised a small seed round. We weren't profitable. We're burning cash just because of servers and things like that as well. And um and I thought, well, it's it's gonna be difficult to raise investment by, you know, going down the route as a sole founder. But also there was like a huge opportunity in the sense that we had customers anywhere. Yeah. I just need to understand better what they're doing and and try and you know grow the kind of revenue. Yeah. So now I went back to the US and kind of travelled few states i jumped a few time zones visit customers on site and i spend a week with like with each of them and then i'd go on site and i do what they're the, trying to understand what they're doing on a daily basis then go back to the hotel at night and hack away on the product and then go back the next day and test it and that really that worked fantastically so we eventually off the back of that i'd say within a few months got the company of profitability and then came back to the uk and then so the challenge then is you know how do you grow so i figured get, getting getting profitability was the answer so I'd go visit customers iterate the product and go back in the next day and test that it worked okay and grow the revenue. So I find it, kind of got the company profitability, which is easy to do when there's only so one-man band. And you're essentially saying, get the company to pay for me and then let you me know we're all good. And then it was a case of, right, now we need to build a team. And obviously you need you need capital to do that. And so that was I was a bit torn at the time thinking, okay, now we could maybe raise more money and go down the, the VC route and try and grow that team. But what I realized through losing a co-founder was it became very political with investors. Obviously, they had opinions about why the relationship had broken down and what should happen next. And, and I kind of realized, actually, this, the potential politics around the investment is a bigger risk to the company than running out of money. So I thought, OK, it doesn't make sense to continue this route. So the best thing to do is just to continue growing the revenue and, and grow organically. And so that's kind of led us to where we are now, really, is we continuously iterate based on feedback. We grow the revenue until we can kind of support and you know, hire another engineer or a marketing person or a designer. And, and that's kind of how we've continued from then on, really
1: my takeaway from that anecdote is your superpower is being a technical founder that has the customer side of it as well and this isn't a a criticism of non-technical founders because obviously every successful company needs a blend of skills but the fact that you could go visit customers and then implement their feedback in like a working day and go back and show it to them is so powerful Um, and i think it's really difficult if you're a non-technical co-founder you're not so close to the product you're not you're not so close to the kind of technology. Uh, All of the successful startups I've seen have had a really strong technical founder. There is a trend towards non-technical founders. And I think if you don't have anyone at that kind of founder level that understands the technology or the product in detail, it's really dangerous. Yeah. So I just think, I think it's really interesting that, you you, you know, you can demonstrate back, back to your earlier comment about, you know, it builds relationships with the customers, makes them more sticky. Mm-hmm. That immediate absorption of their feedback and acting on it is so powerful.
2: Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It's, it has a big impact on everything we do today, really. And I think the, the only difficult thing that comes off the back of that, though, is we're, we're talking, obviously, with lots of customers in many different industries, so they could be tracking everything from medical devices to pharmaceuticals, I'm kind of thinking, what else? Vehicles or any, anything really. Um, and so one of the challenges we often have is we're getting feedback from all of these people and it's trying to stop yourself from just building a solution for that because you have to try and think, we're trying to build a generic platform here. So we need to think about how could we add a feature that would benefit this industry and this industry. And so try to be less reactive. But yeah, I think it, I think it's still one of our strong points is that rapid iteration based on user feedback is the source of innovation.
0: So do you think you'll carry on with the organic growth or do you see anything in the future without giving away anything that might step change? You know, are you looking for that step change?
2: Yeah, I think we've got some new improvements in, in terms of tech that we know that would have a big impact. So I think, yeah, I think we'll still continue on the, on the organic route. But I do think we, we have some opportunities that will be hopefully developing shortly, which should have a, a massive impact on the, on the growth of the company. So I think, yeah, I'd like to like certainly continue on this route and see, see how we get on really.
0: And do you have any concerns, because you know, you're know you the one who's flying out to the States, sitting in the hotel room, rewriting and developing, you know, are there any issues that you see with you still being so actively involved?
2: It's not just me anymore, no actually, yeah. most of our team will, 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 will do the same thing, we'll try and, um, I think it's important, especially like, engineers, to get to meet the customer and understand. What the problem is and uh, so we flew out to kansas maybe a year ago i think now and and visited a ambulance station that we're working you know 24 uh, 7 trying to keep ambulances stocked and things and so um being able to go there and get insights from them people and, and kind of help you know solve the problem is super powerful but i think i used to think in the early days that wasn't scalable but i think it is scalable if you think about the, the world we live in now really we've got the this beautiful benefit of like remote working which is fantastic. It works really well for me as a father. Um, And and also it means that you can invest that that cash that you would have had tied up in offices and things into international trips for your team. You can ask the team to go visit a customer in Kansas or in San Francisco or whatever it might be and and get them really close to the customer. And I think that kind of strategy works well. And it it really goes back a lot, I guess, to in my early days of contracting, you were kind of brought into a company you explain the problem and you were trying to figure it out. It's really just the same thing, isn't it? It's just that you there's now a business model around it.
0: I mean I think what comes across is you're running your own business. You know, you're not being led by other people. You're sticking to the fact that you want to do what is customer driven activities. So yeah. you know I, I think I think it's great. And it would be boring if everyone ran the business the same way.
2: Yeah exactly. I think we've got a unique opportunity to do something a bit different. Um, and I think like in terms of how you run the company I always think back to like how would, you know, whenever I work for another business, what would have been the perfect environment that I would have liked? And it is that kind of remote work, flexibility, get to walk my kids to school and, you know, all of these things So just kind of making that work for others. Back to the the, the VC point or the investment point, as part of the Accelerate program, Peter Cowley, who's an investor here in Cambridge, he gave us a, a, a talk once on like, you know, what is investment? And I remember this class very well. And he he made a point actually in, in, this, in this class where he said, an investor is an employee you cannot fire and I remember thinking, oh, interesting. And I just kind of disregarded it. And it was only like, you know, after everything got complicated for us on, on that front, I really realized the value of what he said there. And that is that the danger of a small company, and this is especially important when you're hiring as well, actually, is is if you get the wrong person into that mix and you've only got a small team, a small culture, you do run the massive risk of like burning all of your energy on politics and not actually moving the company forward. And so I think I certainly wish I'd listened to that more carefully, I guess.
1: So, I mean, that's been a really interesting conversation full of just stuff that we don't typically hear, I think. It's really interesting to see that you've got a different take on things. How do people get in touch? Are you hiring at the moment? You know? Yeah.
2: So, so we're always looking for, for engineers. We do actually put job specs out on our website or jobs are on our website. And obviously we do work with local Cambridge companies as well. So like startups and others that are trying to implement some type of barcode tracking system in medical or whatever it might be. Um, So yeah, if anyone needs any, any support on them, things they can reach out to us and oxcan.com or LinkedIn or whatever it might
1: be. Perfect. Well, thanks for taking the time, John.
2: Thank you very much. It's been great.
1: Today's
0: show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.